This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, we have an awesome entrepreneur here. We have Adam Saxton. Adam is the co-owner and CEO of the Saxton Group. Uh, they are the largest franchisee in the McAllister's chain. They have 87 restaurants in six states. Uh, excited for him to join us today. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm doing great, man. So, Adam, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you, who you are, and you know what you do every day? Sure, sure. So, um, like Chris mentioned, my name is Adam Saxton, and I am the co-CEO of the Saxton Group. We are a multi-unit franchisee based in Dallas, Texas. We operate 87 McAllister's Daily locations from our home base in Dallas, but we have restaurants in six states, kind of following the I-35 corridor um, up through Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, and Nebraska. It's exclusively McAllister's. We're one of the 100 largest franchisees in the country uh, of any brand and the largest McAllister's franchisee. So a um, little bit unique. Most franchisees of our size uh, operate multiple brands, but we just operate McAllister's and are happy doing so uh, for the time being and are um, continuing to look for opportunities to grow. I got to ask, how did you end up on McAllister's and deciding that was the brand you were going to roll with? Like a lot of things that happen in life by accident. So I was, uh, I grew up in a small town outside of Jackson, Mississippi, and McAllister's started in Mississippi. And my father was a restaurant franchisee and for a brand called Mazio's Pizza. We got exposure to McAllister's really early on through, uh, it was just a local place before fast casual was a word before this idea that you order at the counter and sit down and bring out food. So many restaurant chains have that now, but, uh, you know, 20 years ago, that was kind of a new thing. And we thought, Hey, wow, this would be cool. So, um, we opened our first McAllister's in Texas in 1999 and have continued to develop ever since we're unlike a lot of, uh, franchisees, another distinction of the Saxon group, uh, Unlike a lot of franchisees of our size, we have not done significant acquisition to our portfolio. We have not folded in other groups. We have grown almost exclusively through organic unit development, just one location at a time. Just go out, find the site, deal, acquire it, lease it, however we're going to do it. And um, one after another have grown in that manner. Unbelievable story. And when was your first one? 1999. 1999. So at that time, so today, McAllister's is owned by Focus Brands, correct? It is. That's correct. So how was that? Yeah, go ahead. So how was that transition for you going from, you know, 1999 and the ownership there and being the franchisee to this, you know, you're a behemoth and they're a behemoth now? It's changed a lot. You know, one of the things that I always tell other restaurant franchisees or franchisees of any kind to keep in mind is that keep in mind the business model that you're signing up for and the brand that you operate and you will never own. You will never own the brand and you will never have full control over the brand that you are choosing to develop and operate. 
So you got to kind of roll with the puncher. You know, there's going to be decisions to get made that you agree with. There's going to be decisions that get made that you disagree with. Through it all, you have to invest in your own business, in your own locations, in your own support infrastructure to do the best job in your stores you can, despite what um, what may happen at the brand level. And there's there's ups and downs uh, when we since we've been owned by Focus, uh, since McAllister's brand has been owned by Focus. There's been ups and downs with that. There were ups and downs before that. There are resources and things that we have access to being part of a larger portfolio company like Focus that we did not have before. But there's things that were probably, I would have preferred the other way. I try not to stay too focused on things that are outside of my scope of control. And the Saxon Group is within my scope of control. The stores that we operate are within my scope of control. And the 3,700 employees that work for the Saxon Group are within my scope of control. So I try to focus on those people, what's best for them and our customers. And not worry about, you know, what corporation is going to buy McAllister's today or tomorrow or next week. That's great perspective. The Would you say that you're set up from an infrastructure very similar to either a retail chain or a restaurant chain that had, you know, 50 to 100 locations? Are you are you are you set up that way? You have the same departments and everything. This has grown from an entrepreneurial to enterprise scale. Is that is that a fair thing to say now? So one of the things that we've always tried to do is build a brand at the Saxon Group that stands apart from the brands that we operate. So we operate McAllister's, but our whole identity is not wrapped up in McAllister's. Our whole identity and the identity of our people and the way we do things are the way the Saxon Group does things. And um, in order to do that, you have to invest in your own marketing department, in your own IT department. Obviously, all the operational layers and operating the restaurants and training and those type of things we certainly have. But we we try to take every initiative that McAllister's does, whether that be a IT initiative, a food platform, a marketing campaign, whatever idea, and we try to make it our own and really try to make it better, uh, the best we can to um, to drive better performance at our restaurant. I think that's one of the reasons why. Uh, the Saxon Group's average unit volume is about 30 to 40% higher than the brand's average unit volume and over a large base of stores. And one of the reasons why you can have that level of success is because you're investing your own people and your own time and your own talent into everything the brand does to make sure that those initiatives really drive home um, at all of your stores. Well, that, that's great. What is the average, not your group, what does the average McAllister's do in, at, what's the AUV? I think the published McAllister's AUV is about 1.6 million. And what, how big are they today? Uh, McAllister's is about 450 units, about $700 million in sales. Uh, that's my yeah. uh, top of my head guess. And, and, what, and how big are the stores? How big are the, is the footprint of a store? McAllister's uh, store traditionally has been 3,600 to 4,000 square feet. We started uh, several years ago getting a little bit smaller than that. And the new stores that we're opening today are right around 3,000 square feet. Got it. With drive throughs Absolutely. Absolutely. So of your 87, how many have drive throughs uh, and uh, out of my 87 restaurants, I probably either open today or in the process of converting about 10 drive throughs and, and I will not do a new deal without one. 
Sure. And are they, I understand, I understand the trend from the consumer, but just today, based on unit economics, are they, are they your 10 best locations? No, they are, but they're all good locations. Not, I, I would say if, we don't have enough scale with drive through to be able to look at our best locations and automatically know that if, it's not going to be on that list if it doesn't have a drive through. Got it. Okay. But um, it does allow us to really fulfill a bigger promise to the customer than just a drive through, which is that you can interact and order and receive McAllister's in the manner that is most convenient for you at the time that is most convenient for you um, in the way that is most convenient for you. And realize that those need states change. So sometimes I want to go meet somebody for lunch and have a long hour, hour and a half lunch and a great conversation and sit down over a big glass of McAllister's iced tea and take my time. But I realize that's not my occasion every single day. Some days I need to sit here at my desk and never leave it. And I'm going to have order delivered. Some days I'm going to be out in between errands or have kids in the back of the car and I need, I need to quickly feed everybody and I'm going to pull in and get a curbside order. Some days I just want to stop by in the middle of the afternoon and get a cookie and an iced tea and that's a great time to use a drive-through or a pickup window. So we want to be able to service our guests through every available need state that they have, any time of day, any manner, and to do all of that using the McAllister's Deli app or McAllister'sDeli.com. That's really kind of the vision. The drive-through is just one leg of that. That that summed up consumer buying habits and how retailers are thinking about serving them really well. So I'm going to end that piece on that. That was awesome. Uh, thank you for thank sharing. You. That was a good, good perspective. I think the listeners need to hear. Uh, so obviously we live in unique times and the, you guys did some interesting stuff. I saw you, you guys uh, really evolving and doing what you need to like other groups. So, you know, we, we call this like the state of the market part of this show, but tell me about what's going on in the world today, you know, given everything going on and how you, how you see it. I see it as, um, well, I see it in a lot of different ways. You know, those early days of the pandemic in March and April, when our sales evaporated overnight and uh, you had government officials at every level telling people not to go to restaurants and we were closed and it's just really, really unprecedented and really, really scary. So um, as things started to settle down a little bit and our stores always opened, we always opened all of our restaurants in whatever capacity we could open. We kept every employee working as much as we possibly could. We didn't furlough any corporate staff. We didn't really make any changes to pay or structure or really anything. We, we knew that it would pass. and We wanted to, our company to be positioned as well as possible when things started to improve. So I wanted to say that right off the bat. And thing, things did improve. I don't think that I'm breaking news to say that um, chain restaurants who are optimized for off-premise business and have the ability to reach customers on digital platforms are performing really, really well in today's environment. I also think it's not a secret that for several years, we talked about the restaurant industry as being in the retail industry as being really frothy and overblown and 
too many brands were entering too many marketplaces where there were not enough customers. And, you know, we, we thought that there would be a correction to that. We didn't know how it would come and what manner it would become. But it came. It came in the, in the form of a pandemic, which is not certainly what I anticipated or, did, or something that was even really on my radar as a business risk. But it came nonetheless. And um, have, we have been able to pull out um, and perform really well. Our customers have accepted the McAllister's brand both during uh, and here as at, at the tail end of what we hope is the tail end of the pandemic. And um, we've been able to be successful. So I'm thankful to that. We yeah, focused yeah. a lot during, during that time uh, of uncertainty on really trying to reassure not our customers, but our team. I mean, we, we, if our restaurants were going to be able to open again and service the guests with the ultimate goal of any restaurant organization or retail organization is to have people that can provide a great job and service to our valuable guests. If we were going to be able to do that, I knew that during that time of uncertainty or we didn't know where things were headed, I had to take care of my team first or there would be no one left to take care of the customer when the customer started to return. So that's what we focused on. A lot of culture building initiatives. We came up with a hashtag that said, fight for us and gave a lot of direct appeals and messages to our employees that said, we're going to be, we're with you and we're going to come out the other side and be better because of it. And I hope that has been, I hope that has been the case and that our employees recognize that. Um, Yeah. Things are good today. That's fantastic. Um, Really uh, awesome story there. The, you know, one of the things you mentioned that just got me thinking was you mentioned like the oversupply of the marketplace of restaurants. Right. Are you, forget about the restaurants that are like, you might deem as competitive, Mm -hmm. right? You know, sandwich operators or or whatever. Mm -hmm. But do you like, do you believe in the concept that food begets food and that more food together is good? Or do you want to be away from all the other food? Within a, I believe that there can be too much competition within a given trade. If let's assume there's not, let's assume I don't feel there's too much competition within a given trader. There's the right number of restaurants. Where those restaurants are clustered, I certainly would rather be clustered amongst them. So I believe that a, that an overall market, a town, a city, a trade area, however we're breaking it down, can have too many food options within. But if it doesn't, and um, I want to be a part of that trade area or market or town, then I want to be around the other restaurants or other retailers. I believe in food begets food. I believe in retail gravity. I believe that where you you need to be where people already have their wallets out, however you want to call it, I I believe in um, it's important to be where the synergy is. Okay, got it. But you you do believe that there are some markets that, there's no new restaurant that can make it because there's only so much food pie. You know, I've heard the word stomach share before. There's only so much stomach share in any one market, right? Yeah, you know, sometimes people ask me who our comp- competitors are, and I can list you out competitors that serve a similar uh, food type is really where people base what their competition is on. But when I go and look at share our wallet studies we do and where our customers actually uh, spend their money and do business, uh, it's a vast array of uh, restaurant types that are not just sandwich or salad chains that you might traditionally think of as our competitors. 
So when someone asked me what my competitor is, I said, I don't know, where do you eat lunch? The grocery stores are competitor. The, the, the kitchen, the office refrigerator could be our competitor. It's, it's anywhere that takes um, a meal occasion away from, uh, from us that, that could have otherwise done calendars. So yeah, I believe that it doesn't mean that another restaurant couldn't open in those oversaturated trade areas. It just means it has to come from somewhere. So because yeah. there's only so much dollars to go around. There's only so many food occasions to go around for X number of people within a trade area, however you define that. So I, I, I believe that a new one can come in. I believe when a new one could be successful. Sometimes I believe that's going to be me. Yeah. But yeah. I, I know it has to come from somewhere. It's not just, it's not just going to appear out of the thin air. That, 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 I know that when I go into a town, most of those customers were eating lunch the day before I opened, ate lunch somewhere else, and today they're eating with me. And that's one less visit they had wherever the other place was. And then that can happen on the reverse side too. So I try to be mindful of that. And I like, you know, relatively low competition environments. If, if, if we can find them, most restaurants do. And that where you have enough people and not enough restaurants, that's perfect for anyone who's selling a product. Yeah. There is like, and I know in the 80s, there was this thing like, you know, McDonald's would open and say their average at the time was one and a half million for round numbers. It mm-hmm. might not have been. And and then when Burger King would come to down, Burger King would do one three and then McDonald's would go to one eight, you know, mm-hmm. rising tide lifts all boats type thing. And you're creating this synergy. Do you, do you think there's still a place for that? And that happens. I think that that can happen. Sure. Um, but I think that, that there, that's probably less relevant today in that you're no longer raising consumer awareness of restaurants and dining out of the home where most consumers are aware of their different restaurant options, are active food away from home people and consumers. We've seen food away from home every year for many years now has continued to grow. And um, I, I, I think that phenomenon is maybe less than it needs to be. Awesome. Uh, anything else we didn't touch on the market that you are finding, whether it's the food market, the real estate market, anything that you think is of interest? You, you hit on some big picture items that I think were really awesome for the listeners, but just want to make sure. Uh, I, you know, sometimes I was working and doing interviews and talking to the press after the 2008 financial crisis as well. And I see, and one of the things I, I always remember after that, people said, well, so now with, um, with so many businesses struggling or lack of new development or lack of new growth, then that must be mean it's really, really easy to go out and find sites. And I'm starting to hear a line of questioning along that similar path today. And uh, the answer is the same. In 2008, my answer is the same as it is right now. The really good trade areas, the really good places where you want to be are just as tough to penetrate during a, uh, market correction as they are in times of it's it's still real estate is a finite asset there's only so much of it and there's only and and the good stuff i'm not the only smart retailer in the country i'm not the only guy who knows how to go out to the restaurant site lots of people do and so we all know kind of once you train to be able to do that and kind of have the feel for it you know what that looks like it doesn't really change so unless all of a sudden all my big strong competitors who already have sites on the hard corner of Maine and Maine in the great trade area 
unless they all of a sudden disappear overnight and they're not going to because they're going to adapt and pivot get stronger just like we do then there's just they're not making more real estate on top of good real estate so that's one thing that um that i learned then and i'm reminded of now awesome well that's uh more sage advice the next part of the show is the story and and you have an interesting story about a location that opened in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Uh why don't you take us through that? Sure. It opened in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma on Northwest Expressway. They're kind of um really in the middle of the Oklahoma City market, really strong. Lots of lots of uh of our competitors are in that area. And it's a it's a in-town market that is a trade area we've wanted to penetrate for uh, a long time. And um, that store opened in April of 2020, so great timing, right? <laughs> uh, uh, and we paused, the opening was actually scheduled sooner than that. We paused it um, in March and decided to wait and see, but the building was done, the staff was great, we wanted to, we wanted to open, so we did, and that store has performed well. Um, but it's certainly not the grand opening that we had planned for that location that we'd worked for for a really long time. And one of the reasons why it was difficult is like all the great sites, every site I can think about throughout my career are the ones that, that, that really come to mind are the ones that were the hardest to do because the obvious stuff is um, great and you're gonna do that a lot, but the, the most fun, the most rewarding are the ones where you kind of created something where nothing existed before. This particular site was, um, we bought a carve out from a hotel developer that had an old, um, I, I don't even know what property it had been, it had been called the Tower Hotel there. And they were in the process of buying the hotel and converting it to a new embassy suite, the large hotel operator. And in, in that, they were doing some renovations and we were able to really, they, they took off a piece of the hotel where there was like a, a pool and a conference center and and created an ally. And it doesn't look like you're part of the hotel now. Now it looks like that's always been a restaurant lot. But uh, we were able to work with them and they wanted some food synergy. We wanted to be on the location and um, we're uh, happy to be able to get that done. But you would never, it, it, it's funny, you would drive by before and you would never see a side there because you're like, there's nowhere to build anything there. And now you would drive by after and you would say, of course, there's a restaurant there. It's sitting right here on Northwest Expressway. That's always been there. That's always been a restaurant site. So it's it's fun to be able to see those things come full circle when you when you work hard to get something and you know that you know. Listen, I think about my competitors. I think about them driving by how they do that because I do that all the time. I do that all the time. I'll I'll drive around and that's I'll awesome. See, I'll see somebody like in our business. There's so many people who are good at what they do. So I'll see. Chick-fil-A or Starbucks or McDonald's or I could keep naming it and I'll see them at in some location opening up in a trade area where I know I'm looking up like how'd they get it? Yeah. They get it? And um I, I I thought that that was one where maybe my competitors might drive by and think that about about me. So that's fun. That makes me smile. Awesome. That is one of my favorite stories that I've heard here. That's really great. So uh a couple of things. I want to unpack that for a second. So one, the, how involved are you being the the co-founder CEO of the company in real estate? So I've done lots of different jobs since I started, but the one thing that I've always done is pick sites. So 
Got it. That's the, that's the first thing that I did. And probably whenever they wheel me out of here, uh, hopefully a long time from now, um, that'll still be the last thing that I did. So the other pieces of the business that it takes to be a co-CEO and leader of the company, I, um, I learned along the way. I learned as I went. Uh, a special project came up, something came up, exposure, and I started doing, uh, doing marketing or working with our senior lenders and doing finance or other banking relationships that we have or interacting with our franchisee, uh, our franchisor and other franchisees. Those things came along the way and I continued to build those skills. But before, during, and after all of those things besides selection, I'm still probably my favorite thing to do is to grow and provide opportunity for our people. And it's still a primary focus of my job every single day. Awesome. So hard to farm that out. It's expensive. It's expensive to, um, that's an expensive mistake. And if I'm going to make an expensive mistake, I'd rather that be my mistake. Interesting perspective. The, is there, let me ask you this then, is there a goal of how many stores you want to get to? I probably said 50 and now we have 87. And so then I, now I say a hundred because that sounds like a nice round number and then uh, Got it. we'll make another plan. But you know, this is a family business. I work with my father and my brother and we look at this long-term and are uh, hopefully going to be doing the same thing for a long time. Growing the McCausky brand, maybe another restaurant brand until, um, well, yeah, until I got it. my kids are doing it, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The, so, this is so many things. So you're you're driving around, and you're looking at sites in Oklahoma City. How did how did the how did you turn this up that there might be an opportunity? Because as you said, you drive by, it wouldn't cross your mind to go. There should be a restaurant here on a pad. It was a pool previously. Right. How'd you turn up the opportunity? Um, I had been introduced to the hotel developer through someone who works at Focus Brand. So there, there we go. I got a benefit from, got it. from being part of this big corporation where all these people have connections. So I, um, I benefited from that relationship and was made aware that there might be an opportunity there because you're, I probably would have just gone by and be like, I'm not going to call the host. Someone said, what about that? I'd be like, what about what? You want yeah. to call the hotel and ask them to bulldoze their atrium? Yeah. <laughs> That's never going to happen. Yeah. So yeah, I had a little bit of insight uh, got it. That's fantastic. And uh, so the, when you've driven and you've seen like those locations you've said of like, how did they do that? Mm-hmm. How did I miss that? How did they do that? Is there any common themes you get to on, on what made it possible? Like when on the ones that you got done that are hard, like you said, or the locations that you see any common themes you see that like, that's how they got it done. That's how people Often, get it done. It's that like so many things in business. That's it's about this. It's like the story I just told. It's about a, it's about a relationship. And sometimes that relationship can be because uh, your broker knows a developer who's working with someone. And they're going to make a side happen here. Or, you know, there's lots of scenarios that way can play out. That'd be kind of the more traditional idea of kind of insider trading, knowing about something before the marketplace knows about it. Yeah. I always say, that, like, by the time before lease sign is up, it's, it's probably already too late. I mean, I'm not going to say that. I mean, I, I, we have great restaurants that I probably lease up before lease sign, but not a lot of them. And um, 
but that, that can also be like really simpler, just trying to make sure that your name and your contact information and your brand is out there in the marketplace. So developers or people who own real estate know if they have a new project coming up or if they have space they're looking to fill, that you're gonna, they're going to call you first. So probably that is one of the ways that the people who you drive around and are most sort of admire their real estate, admire their site selection, it's probably because they were one of the first calls. They got the first crack of the opportunity. Because if it's a really good opportunity, there's only so many retailers and restaurants who are going to say no before the space is, is filled. And sometimes it, it might be the first person they ask takes the space or takes the land or whatever you're trying to get done there. So you need to be early on in the decision set of the developer or the asset owner to be able to get a crack of that opportunity. They're really good. Yeah, so the mind share for sure, being top of mind is important, uh, no doubt. How of the of your locations, how many do you lease versus own? You know, I say that we are real estate agnostic when it comes to the way the asset is classified. So we uh, have a bunch of locations that we lease, and a bunch of locations that we own, and a bunch of stuff that we develop ourselves, and a bunch of stuff that has been developed by other people. So today. With our preference for freestanding locations and drive-throughs, we are owning more things than we have in the past, but I'll lease a, a great site anytime. And the caps with drive-throughs and pickup windows are really, very appealing to me too in shopping centers, lots of gravity. So, um, Got so it, makes sense. Makes it, you want, great, you want great real estate. estate. You want great real yeah, estate. Yeah, I don't That's care. It. I don't care. I'm, I'm not, I'm, ultimately, I am in the restaurant business. And I'm not going to get sidetracked by trying to become a real estate developer slash restaurant owner slash franchisee. You know, I know um, there's lots of opportunities with real estate as you build out a multi-location portfolio. But I know also what ultimately uh, drives our company, keeps our people employed and creates opportunity for the future is the restaurant side of our business. So that's, that's where we stay focused. I love that. The I love that. I I was actually in corporate real estate. I worked for Sherwin Williams, mm-hmm. uh, and you know they were very disciplined when you know I was out in the early two thousands looking at locations, and I was out of college and I was like, why don't we buy something? And they're like, you know, they were, they were disciplined on they're in the paint business. Mm-hmm. That's what drove the bus. There's the paint business, not the real estate. Even though real estate's a function of the business, not their business. And that and that can happen. And we have had real estate opportunities come to us or that we've created that we own and then later sold or developed in some manner. And that's great. That's a great side effect of the business, but our core business is selling club sandwiches, you know, and I'm not going to forget that. Yeah, that's great. The, one of the things you mentioned is you, you connect with other franchisees and you talk to franchisees. How important is networking with people in the restaurant industry? It's important to know what other people are doing, no matter what you're, what business you're in. And it's particularly important in the restaurant industry, um, in a franchise system where you have other people doing exactly what you're doing, other people owning and building and operating McAllister's, doing exactly what I'm doing, uh, working with focus brands in the same manner that I'm working with uh, focus brands that, um, that I get to talk to and learn from and share best practices with. So... 
I think networking is really important no matter what you do, like I said, but in franchising, it just seems like a no-brainer because you've got this peer set doing um, doing your same line of work that you guys can learn for, from and, uh, and be stronger together. So I encourage it, particularly for franchising, both within the brand that they operate and outside of the brand that they operate. Got it. Um, last thing, going back to the, the hotel deal. Mm-hmm. The atrium, the pool, the all this. Yeah. One of the things that I start thinking about are dollar signs. This is expensive stuff to convert this into restaurant. How tough of a negotiation did this end up being? It was a tough negotiation. We paid more for that site probably than we typically pay, but not a lot more. It was part of an overall, to just randomly go and do that. No, that never would have gotten done. But they were doing a large renovation at the hotel in Anyway, it was a, for lack of a better word, it was a shovel-ready project. Stuff was coming down. They were tearing stuff apart. They were making way for the new. So it created an opportunity to do a site where maybe previously it would have been economically unfeasible. Timing. Timing, man. Timing works. Well, listen, that was an awesome story. Um, And really just the overall story of the company, the Saxon Group, is just phenomenal. It's really refreshing to hear. And I'm glad you guys are crushing it right now. Um, I really, uh, really excited for you guys to keep on, um, to keep on going. Thank you. Yeah. So the, the last part of our show, retail wisdom, and I've got three questions for you. Tell me when you're ready. Okay. I'm ready. So with that prep time, you know, you're just going to get the answer that you get. That's it. That's it. All right. You got it. Question one. What is your best piece of commercial real estate advice? My best piece of commercial real estate advice is to say no. Say no. That's the most powerful weapon you have as a, as a site selector, as someone who's going out and develop, as someone who's evaluating opportunities. Just remember that you can just say no and wait for the next one. There's, uh, there's, always, um, there's always another deal around the corner. Sometimes in the middle of negotiations or you're looking for something or you're pounding the paper really hard and trying to make a, make a side happen or find an opportunity. But for one reason or another, it just doesn't seem right or the economics are off or it doesn't fit your model or whatever the reason may be. You can just say no. Certainly can. Uh, sage advice. Second question. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? This is a multi-choice question. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, things that are extinct retailers probably were not offering a product or a service that I would be that interested in. I mean, I, I'm, I'm always looking kind of at what's next. Or what, they could have just, but they, they could have offered something great, but then not been good operators. Right, huh. I don't know. You not know, the past. Nothing comes to mind. Nothing you know, comes to mind. I, I, you know, a lot of people have said, yeah, right, like, with cheers. Yeah, what, what's your, what, what, what other people uh, say? So, so Toys R Us has been a big fan favorite lately because, you know, okay. they like the product that people have, but, you know, you know, I think they had debt issues and it, it was less about the product and service and more about the business model that they created and couldn't pivot, you know, um, things like that. Yeah, it's, I mean, Toys R Us, that's, 
it's funny, I was telling the story recently. So I have twin boys, they're six. They think that one of the, here's the lesson they learned during the pandemic is that sometimes Amazon doesn't come in two hours. You know, sometimes <laughs> you have to wait a, another day or maybe even two day shipping. Sometimes, you know, Amazon was uh, overloaded there with orders and they paused kind of non-essential shipping and they slowed down there for a little while. And so uh, that's a good example of how the landscape changed where when I was a kid, I was super excited about going to Toys R Us and picking out the aisle and going up to them. My kids are super excited about scrolling and picking out a toy from the Amazon from Amazon and having it delivered as quickly as possible. So, yeah. but can you know if you want a toy and the store is twenty minutes from you, you can get it faster today than you can from any delivery if they got it in the store. Yeah, and I love that. The retail sites, I, I mean, I actually think that retailers who have this live um, uh, inventory feature on their website where you can see what's available, I use that myself all the time. Still, there's many times where I'd much rather just go pick something up and deal with uh, waiting to have it shipped or the boxes. We're all tired of the boxes, I know, sometimes. And all of that, just go and grab it. But I don't want to drive over there if, if, if they might not have it in stock. So I love the ability those retailers have been able to merge their inventory systems and show what you can order online, but also show what you can just go pick up in the store. And I'm a big fan of that. I use it all the time. Now you've had some time to think, is there any retailer that you way back when that you wish would come back? I had a lot of fun on Friday nights going to check out the new release of the Blockbuster. So uh, there, that was an outing. That was something fun to do. They had the bags of popcorn. You could get some Twizzlers and take home your new release. And eventually it all was new release. Like they just didn't even carry anything. Because there were, you'd, go, you'd look at the back wall, there'd be 200 of the same title, Die Hard or something. Yes. That's so, um, yeah, I missed, I, I missed those Friday night Blockbuster nights. I haven't had a Twizzler in a long time. That's a that's a that's a Twizzlers candy I haven't had. Candy. Yeah, that's Twizzlers solid movie candy. I recommend. <laughs> yeah. Last question. Okay. I'm up here in New Jersey in the Northeast. Okay. I'm getting cold. Okay. I'm looking at North Face website at their men's down parka. Okay. What does that retail for? A men's down parka from the North Face. Um. $79. I could tell you're from not from the Northeast. $330, but thank you for playing. Well, uh, okay. So I think that our definitions of park are does this have like a hood, like a big winter coat? Oh, I'm going to show you right now. You ready? Oh, let me see. I'll show you. Okay. $330. All right. Yeah. That's more of a coat than we need in Texas. <laughs> you don't need this in Texas. No, no. That's nice, though. It is nice. Yeah. Um, well, listen, this is great. Ask me what a gallon of milk costs. I know that people give embarrassing answers to that. It makes them seem really out of touch. So, yes. Hopefully. So the, the fan favorite product that I've said that got a lot of fanfare was actually early on when we started the podcast with a lot less listeners. But as people start to, you know, find us, uh, one of the, and they get really into the show, one of the, the products we used was one of the, the hottest books in 2019 for Christmas on Amazon's website was the Snoop Dogg cookbook from crook to cook. Okay. So that was a, that was a fan favorite. So we, we go all over the map. Of <laughs> I, I forget what it was. I forget what it was, but we go, 
we go uh, we 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 go a little uh, all over the map for products and not just do the gallon milk. All right, cool. Well, I was wrong about the parka. <laughs> I was trying to discount the North Bay. <laughs> well, listen, this has been great, man. Thanks uh, so much. I really fun. appreciate it. This is awesome, and you know, keep grinding, man. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.